Hello, greetings. Thank you for giving the gift of spending your time with us as we seek to open the pages of Scripture and understand more of what God has made known for us in Jesus. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Before we begin our conversation, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're thankful for all the blessings of life that you've given us. We're thankful for the hope of redemption, reconciliation, and resurrection that we have in Jesus, for the Spirit, the Word, uh, your people, for the creation, for health and prosperity that we enjoy, and for all the good things of life and all the blessings that you've promised us now and in the future. As we're about to consider the things that uh, your Son has spoken, we op ask you to open our, our hearts and minds that we may take the things that we have learned and use them to be more effective servants in your kingdom. We pray these things in your Son, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord Jesus said, beginning in Luke chapter 16 and verse 19, the following, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. So here we have Jesus telling the story of Lazarus and the rich man. It's important to understand what's going on here in context. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ and he was transfigured, uh, Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers to Samaria to repair the way for him. But it's only in the next chapter, Luke 17, uh, in verse 11, that Luke reports that Jesus is actually on the path of Jerusalem and passes along the Galilee-Samaria border. And so everything that's going on from Luke 9, 51 through 17 and verse 11 are the series of conversations, proclamations, and interactions that Jesus is having, uh, teaching and exhorting his disciples and others the important messages they needed to hear before his time in Jerusalem would come. And the story here of Lazarus and the rich man comes at the end of an extended series of instructions that began all the way back in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1 that uh, in the midst of other teaching, uh, tax collectors and sinners, Luke noted, uh, had gathered to listen to Jesus. And Pharisees and scribes grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Um, and so he told them the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son in the rest of chapter 15. All of them emphasizing 
how God has great rejoicing over that which is lost, that is found, which is redeemed over that which is already saved. And of course, the portrayal of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, very much like the Pharisee. And the Pharisees were to see themselves in that older uh, brother. Then there's the parable of the dishonest manager at the beginning of chapter 16 that he says to his disciples, uh, ending that exhortation with the uh, commandment that uh, you can not serve two masters. Uh, you hate the one and love the other, despise the one and cling to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And at this, in verse 14 of chapter 16, we're told that the Pharisees, who loved money, scoffed, uh, ridiculed at Jesus when he said these things. And so then we have a series of exhortations specifically at the Pharisees. Uh, they are the ones who justify themselves before men, but God knows their hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then uh, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. We should understand those teachings as being specifically directed at the Pharisees and some of the ways in which they had been becoming lax and loosening things in the law. And so then we have the story of of a rich man and Lazarus. And it's really the climax of Jesus' instruction against the Pharisees and tailored for that purpose. So Jesus begins by introducing the characters. The first one is a certain rich man. We're told about him that he uh, is clothed in purple and fine linen and he feasted sumptuously every day. Sometimes the rich man is called Dives, uh, which is the Latin word for rich man. He is not named. Um, and his wealth is hyperbolic. Purple is reserved for the very wealthy uh, and generally the senatorial class. Uh, senators would have a toga with a strip of purple. Uh, it was reserved for the emperor alone to wear a silk garment of purple. Anyone else who would to dare to wear a full purple garment would be arrested and executed. Uh, even a lot of rich people would not feast sumptuously on a daily basis. They would have their feast days, and they would feast sumptuously, but not every day. So this rich guy is like the ultimate rich dude. He, he's, he's living it up. And then we have Jesus introduced to us, Lazarus, who's a beggar. He's full of sores. He wants to be fed with what falls from the rich man's table. The dogs would come and lick his sores. Lazarus is the Hebrew Eleazar, Eliezer. Uh, God has helped. God is his help. Uh, he is hyperbolic in poverty because he's a beggar. He's yearning for table scraps. He's in great pain and distress. Uh, dogs were generally not favored in the ancient world, especially not these, the kunes, uh, which are the wild dogs uh, who were feral and known actually to eat people. Um, it, he's not able to fend them off. Uh, and he may even take some comfort in, in that because that's the only connection he gets. It also shows he is ritually unclean. It's also uh, worth pointing out that, uh, the way Jesus puts it, at his gate was laid a poor man. That Lazarus does not even have agency here. He is placed there. Now, there's two ways that we can look at the rich man and how he associates with Lazarus. Our initial impulse would be, oh, look, the rich man is callous. He doesn't care. He doesn't see Lazarus at all. He's very blasé in his decadence. But it's very interesting to note, the rich man does not expel Lazarus. He doesn't... Doesn't have him cleared out. He he. We're gonna see later. Identifies, recognizes who he is. Uh, we might even think that the rich man may think he's being benevolent in providing Lazarus a place to stay, where there will be people coming and giving him alms. Um, and so 
we have to remember Lazarus is unclean. It's not like you just welcome him into your house. There was an expectation that there would be a maintenance of some kind of social distance. And where we can see that there is an implicit condemnation of the rich man for not pursuing justice, faithfulness, and mercy because he is condemned and in torment, as we're going to see. Uh, he's not chided for the way he treats Lazarus in this story. And it's not the point. Uh, the point is that both of them die. Lazarus is taken up by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is in torment in Hades in verses 22 and 23. This is the only reference we have to the idea of, of, of the afterlife as Abraham's bosom. And it's to be understood kind of like we saw in the Old Testament a lot of times, to be gathered at one's fathers. Well, who is the father of the Israelites? Well, the father of the Israelites is Abraham. And so Lazarus receives comfort in the rest in the bosom of Father Abraham, uh, a manifestation that Lazarus, despite all that he has suffered, is still a child of Abraham. Hades is the Greek term for the underworld. There's all kinds of mythological connotations with that, but we should look at it here primarily as translating Hebrew Sheol, the underworld. In the Old Testament, it's not explicitly identified as a place of torment, like the Greek Tartarus, or like later Christian conceptions of hell, but a bifurcated afterworld with a place of comfort for the faithful and a place of torment for the unjust and the wicked was something that a lot of people in Second Temple uh, Judaism would, would, would roll with. Uh, Jesus is not intending to give the Pharisees here a map of the afterlife. That's not the point of this story. Unfortunately, it ends up being seen that way and used that way, uh, but that's not what he's trying to do. In fact, we can suggest that Jesus is, is playing off the standard expectations of what the afterlife looks like. We should not believe that the Pharisees would have been, wait a second, wait a second, there's going to be a Abraham's bosom and a Hades and a gap between them. Uh, that would all be something that they would recognize. Uh, the shocking and controversial aspect of the story is not the way the afterlife is set up, it's who is where. Uh, Pharisees would consider the wealth as a sign of blessing from God and the poverty a sign of disfavor in Proverbs. Um, the fact that the, the, the poor man, Lazarus, is unclean, that he is ill, that he is, is a beggar, uh, shows God's divine disfavor. They would expect him to be in torment and the rich man receiving comfort because he is clearly blessed by God. Um, and so the fact that Jesus reverses that, and it's poor old Lazarus who's up in, in Abraham's bosom, and it's the rich man in torment would, would be what is truly discomforting here. And so we see that, yes, the, the rich man's in torment. He's able somehow to see afar off Abraham and, and Lazarus. And he cries out, Father Abraham, uh, let Lazarus dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. And so Abraham tells him, well, son, we're going to talk about your child, remember that in life you had good things, and, and Lazarus had evil things, and now he is comforted, and you are in torment. And also, he says, there's this gap, this gulf, this, this chasm that keeps anyone who wants to come from you to us from coming over, anyone wanting to come from us to you from coming over, in verses 24 through 26. It's worth pointing out here again, the rich man recognizes Lazarus, knows who he is. The thirst and torment would be very real. It's also uh, thirst, a way of talking about uh, a desire for God's presence, like Psalm 42, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. Uh, also, therefore, confession that he is alienated from God. Uh, Abraham calls the rich man son or child, uh, confessing that indeed the rich man is a child of Abraham. 
Uh, and it's also a subtle way of demonstrating uh, for Jesus that just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're going to be saved. Uh, John the Baptist would say in Luke 3 and verse 8 that don't come saying that we have Abraham as our father because God is able to raise children of Abraham out of these very stones. And so Abraham here explains the great reversal. The rich man had received good things in his life, Lazarus evil things, Lazarus now comforted, the rich man is now in anguish. And the fact that we hear that and just kind of take it for granted shows just how much we've internalized Jesus and his messages. Uh, because Abraham's declaration is a very discomforting thing. It's a manifestation of those reversals that Jesus had talked about in Luke 6, 20-26, which were a hallmark of his ministry. Uh, the exalting of what had been humbled, and the humbling of all that was exalted in the sight of man. So the rich man cannot receive comfort. That's what Abraham's trying to communicate. Uh, judgment has been rendered. And even if Abraham were willing, uh, there's that gulf that exists between the two. Uh, somehow in the story there's perception communication, but it could also just be part of the way that the devices of the story uh, to make the story work. So the rich man then makes a second request. Okay, I have five brothers, send Lazarus to them so that uh, they don't spend time with me in this torment. And Abraham says, well, uh, they have the law and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets that they can listen to. Uh, and, the and he says, no, Father, if, if, if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham ends the whole story again by saying, if they would not hear Moses of the prophets, they will not believe if someone is raised from the dead. Now, we might not automatically think of resurrection when we think of Abraham sending Lazarus, but that's the idea the rich man has here. Um, and even this is something that's extraordinary, because yes, Resurrection is a theme in Second Temple Jewish thought. It is very prevalent among the Pharisees. But as we can see in John eleven twenty four, 24, uh, in the voice of Martha, the common conception is that there is going to be a final resurrection on the last day. Uh, there was no expectation there would be anyone rising from the dead before that final day. So, uh, even this picture here is a little strange in terms of the expectation of Second Temple Judaism. That, in fact, what would be much more expected would be a, a visit uh, from a ghost or a spirit. Something very much like uh, the experience of Ebenezer Scrooge with Jacob Marley in uh, Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, it would be much more consistent with expectations, even in the first century. But Abraham is adamant. They need to listen to Moses and the prophets. Moses, of course, the law. Uh, G has rooted his understanding in how those with wealth should treat others in the law and the prophets. And so for the Pharisees to claim to observe the law and the prophets and yet treat people the way they do, to be as greedy as they are, is the real scandal. The rich man, though, is convinced if someone rises from the dead, his brothers would listen. But Abraham again says, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded if a person would rise from the dead. So what do we do with this story? Well, the question we do with this story is inextricably wrapped with a question that comes to mind and has been the focus of the center and controversy story, which is, uh, is it true or not? And the reason why it's true or not is, in the idea is, is Jesus telling a story of events that actually happened or is he telling a parable? And there's a lot hanging on that question because there are many who want to use what Jesus says here as a map of the afterlife in a way uh, for Christians to understand what will happen when they die. And those who consider it to be a true story point to the fact that Lazarus is named, that Abraham is present, it's not called a parable, and it's very rich and extended in its imagery. 
And there, there's a lot of energy expended in trying to uh, establish this because a lot of people want to hang their understanding of the afterlife on the story that Jesus tells here. Now, while it is true that we do not see people named in parables, uh, just because Lazarus is named doesn't make the story true, because fictional stories can have named characters. And it gets us to ask an important question. What's going on with the naming here? Why is Lazarus the beggar named? I mean, if it's to give a sense of the authenticity of the story, why isn't the rich man named? Maybe it's that we're supposed to see a bitter irony in Lazarus' name. God, my help. Because if you look at Lazarus, the poor beggar, you know, full sores, licked by dogs, it doesn't seem like God's helped him very much. But we see, of course, in the ultimate end of the story, that God has been his help. He is now in Abraham's bosom. And so for those in Lazarus' position, which is the plight of the sinners, the ones declared unclean in various ways by the Pharisees, uh, that are all around in this story, whether they're phys they're physically present, even if we we don't see them uh, in the narrative, uh, very much like Lazarus in that sense. God is their help. He's going to be faithful to covenant. It also plays into Jesus' grand reversal. Uh, normally, we know the names of the wealthy, but we forget the poor. And the plight of the wealthy is individualized. We know about even to the day. We we know what's going on with the lives of celebrities. Um, uh, happen to be having this conversation right now in the midst of the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus issue. And there's all these people who are getting it, but who do we know? We know when a celebrity has it, or when a politician has it, or some official has it. And uh, we, we hear about their individualized plight, and then everybody else is, you know, just a, a, a kind of a footnote in the end of everything. But in this story, uh, we have the great reversal in that we see Lazarus as specifically identified. He's made a bit of the hero in this story. And the uh, rich man is otherwise unidentified, and he's left in generalized obscurity. And so there's a lot of reasons why Lazarus can be named in this story, which would not require the story to be true in the sense of real. And it is true that the story is not called a parable, but not all parables are thus identified. In fact, the parable of the prodigal son just starts, there was a certain man. And in fact, it starts very much like it. There was a certain rich man. Um, and parables can have uh, a longer theme and have great detail, like the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother. Um, and we also see that this comes at the end of a series of parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, dishonest manager, and now here the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And all of them are being used really to instruct the Pharisees. And there are a lot of things about the story that just don't sit well with being true in the sense of being real. Uh, the contrast is a little bit too perfect, too on the nose, extremely hyperbolic. Uh, can the rich man really just be condemned because he's wealthy? And is Lazarus redeemed only because he had a pretty wretched lot in life? Is there really water near Abraham's bosom? Is there really fire in torment? Why resurrection? when everybody would normally be expecting a ghost. And so there's a lot of reasons why we do better to understand the story of Lazarus and the rich man as a parable, a true-to-life story that speaks of the conventional understanding of the afterlife. Both many aspects of the story turn to indict the Pharisees in their hypocrisy and their greed. 
And when we see that, we can see how Jesus is indicting the greedy, hypocritical Pharisees. That they would be the victims of this grand reversal that's taking place in Jesus, where the exalted are humbled and the humble are exalted. That their wealth and their standing as children of Abraham are not going to rescue them from the torments that are going to await them. That if they do not heed Moses and the prophets in this, they're not going to listen to those who proclaim that the Son of Man has arisen from the dead. So when we think about this parable, this story, we, we see that it's not really about Lazarus. It's not about the rich man. It's not about the afterlife. It's about an illustration to the Pharisees and how they're storing up wrath in their greed, hypocrisy, and their resistance to the work of God in the kingdom of Jesus. That the Pharisees walk around in full conviction of their righteousness and holiness, that they are descendants of Abraham, that God has blessed them with material abundance and wisdom and an understanding Moses and the prophets, at least in their own estimation. And so the Pharisees expect to die and rest in Abraham's bosom. As for that sad, unholy, unclean rebel around them, well, they don't have much hope of sharing in that kind of blessed fate. The Pharisees aren't going to be around that kind of uncleanliness, and those unclean people mean that their standing uh, before God is very suspect, if not entirely laughable. And so the story of the rich man Lazarus is completely upending this Pharisaic narrative. Jesus never denies that the rich man's blessings, excuse me, wealth, is a blessing from God. But he does make it plain how that wealth did not save him. It did not provide assurance for salvation. In fact, instead, uh, it means he's had the good in this life, and now he's got torment and death because he did not listen to Moses and the prophets. Furthermore, the rich man is a child of Abraham, but he's in torment. His election in Abraham was no guarantee of salvation. And on top of all this is that wretched, unclean beggar of a man, Lazarus. He's the one enjoying Abraham's bosom, the kind of person that the Pharisees held in contempt and that wouldn't be found dead around. And he's the one who has obtained all the blessings of the righteous in the covenant. And implicit in all of this is that the condemnation of the rich man is secured in Moses and the prophets. These are the ones that the Pharisees claim to rightly interpret and sat in his seat in Matthew 23, 1 and 2. But they're falling now under a similar condemnation. And so uh, we've got this thread that's coming from the lost coin and sheep through the prodigal son and the older brother that's now being fully wrapped up with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. That the Pharisees presume to be in their right because they have professed to know Moses and the prophets and they're materially blessed, but they're not treating their fellow Israelites the way God would have them to do that. And their fate is more likely that of the rich man than Lazarus. And as Christians, we need to absorb the lessons of that great reversal because they're manifest in Jesus' kingdom. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul would talk about how the desire for money is the root of all kinds of evils, that contentment with godliness has great value in God's sight, that those who have that material wealth need to use it to benefit others so they gain treasure in the presence of God. In James 5, uh, James has this thorough denunciation of the wealthy for their uh, oppression of the poor, and he presumes that the Christians are those who are poor being oppressed. In Romans 2, 5-11, through 11, uh, Paul says, God shows no partiality in judgments based on what you have done. Uh, our judgment before God is based on what we have done, not on who we are. In Christ, the wisdom of the world has been upended and demo- demonstrated to be demonic and worldly and unspiritual in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and James 3, 13-18. 
And so the question comes to us, are we going to pursue worldly wisdom and justify covetousness and greed, or are we going to manifest the kingdom of Jesus by freely giving to identify with the poor, the marginalized, and those who are considered unclean among us? Uh, to see that in this story, uh, we need to be a lot more like Lazarus and identify a lot more with Lazarus than we should the rich man. That our aspiration to be the rich man is only going to lead us to where the rich man is going. And that's the big danger. That if we're not careful, we're going to follow in the way of the rich man and share in his fate. Unfortunately, the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus is not nearly very often cited, quoted, and discussed for the reason that Jesus said it. Instead, it ends up being cited or quoted to provide some kind of guide or roadmap to uh, what the afterlife is believed to be like. Now, it's not Jesus' purpose to give us a map of the afterlife in, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, he's using conventions very familiar to his audience that might well have represented what the afterlife looked like at that particular moment. Uh, even if you're not fully convinced that the story is a parable or that it's fictional, uh, I would hope that the amount of evidence that suggests that it might well be a parable or a fictional should be enough to be very careful before building one's whole view of the afterlife on the basis of this story being true and real and as a continual picture of the way the afterlife works. And beyond that, Jesus speaks this before he dies and is raised and ascends to the Father. And in Colossians 1, 12-23, in many of the passages, we're told that that event has cosmic implications. And we can't assume that the map of the afterlife, quote-unquote, which existed before, Jesus died, was raised, and ascended, would look exactly uh, like uh, what it would afterward. And how would we know which elements we should accept to be quote-unquote literally true and which are metaphors? Um, well, people look at Abraham's bosom as paradise and Hades as torment, and there's a great gulf between them, uh, possibly, but why the water? Why not water and fire? Uh, how can it be you can see over the gulf and speak over it but cannot cross it? And, and more importantly, how? On what basis could we adjudicate the answers to those questions? Where are we going to turn to to say, well, this is definitely the way it is, but this is not. There's no basis upon which to do that. In Philippians 1, 20-24, Paul talks about how he, it is better to go and be with Christ uh, in death. In Revelation 7, the, the picture is given of uh, first uh, these Christians on earth, and then there's the Christians surrounding the throne of God. And that's consistent with John 14, where Jesus went to prepare a place. Uh, and, and the place he went to prepare is not a place in a spatial sense. It is a relational place. That uh, we would dwell with God. That we dwell with God in a sense now that God dwells with us. And thus when we die, we go to be with heaven to be again with the Lord, await the resurrection of life. And in John 5, 20 and 29, there is a resurrection of condemnation awaiting the unrighteous. And there's an eternity in the lake of fire uh, viewed in Revelation 20. And it's very consistent with the message of alienation from God for eternity in Matthew 25, 2 Thessalonians 1 and many other passages. And it might well be that such ones are in a hell of torture awaiting that day. So we do better to build our understanding of the afterlife on these passages that are made fully known while Jesus is Lord. 
and, and maybe a little more skeptical of the use and the portrayal of the afterlife and the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, Luke 16 19-31 to that same end, since we cannot be certain. When we talk about the story of Lazarus and rich man, it's easy to neglect Lazarus, ironically, because so much emphasis is being placed on the fate of the rich man in light of the Pharisees and their posture, and the question about the afterlife and the resurrection in the end. But Lazarus is not just a negative foil. He's not just the embodiment of all the Pharisees despise. He is also, by virtue of his name, the one God helps. As the story of the rich man presages doom for the Pharisees, the story of Lazarus is a message of hope for all those quote-unquote sinners that the Pharisees have snubbed and have deemed unworthy of life. Now to say that if one has gone through awful things in this life as a guarantee of salvation would go beyond anything that Jesus has said or made known in the gospel. It's very possible to live a wretched life, to remain immersed in sin and alienated from God. In the, living in the works of the flesh of Galatians 5, uh, having not known God or obeyed his gospel in 2 Thessalonians 1. But Jesus does indeed give hope to those who feel like they've otherwise been forgotten, to tell them God has not forgotten them, that material poverty and illness is not a display of God's disfavor, that poor wretched Lazarus has his God for his help, and he would find comfort in Abraham's bosom. And as Christians today, we would do well to be convicted for this, because God would be the help of the homeless, the migrant, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. And are we willing to share what God has given us with them, materially and spiritually, and share in life in them, not in a patronizing, see how much better off we are than you are way, but in a truly way where we are jointly participating in life, where we share in gifts with one another, and value and honor uh, those who are not as uh, well off as we are in material abundance and in health? Uh, that is really the ultimate question. Because if we share with them, Will we not share in God who is in there, who is their help? And if we do not share in them, who have God as their help, what will be of us when we die? But the story ends abruptly, doesn't it? Where Abraham says, they don't listen to Moses and the prophets. They're not going to listen if someone rises from the dead. And then Jesus goes on to say, you know, temptations to sin are to come. Woe to those who bring them to the, to, the, to his disciples. Uh, which is definitely kind of throwing some shade there at the uh, Pharisees, no doubt. We don't see a pithy conclusion here like Jesus normally gives to a story like this. He leaves us hanging with Abraham's final comment. It might be argued that that's the reason it's not a parable. But even if we were to insist on the reality of the story, it doesn't relieve the tension because the conundrum still remains. Why would Jesus end the telling of the story in this way and move on? Remember, this is only found in Luke. And Luke has crafted the narrative very powerfully. And he has left it end where he does as a perennial question. Because as is often happens with Jesus' stories, they seem to be about other people, but they end in him and with him. So like at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother, we're, we're, we're left to think, well, what should the older brother have done? And we realize that we ask that question, we see that what Jesus will do is what the older brother should have done, that Jesus is the ideal elder brother, having uh, welcomed those who the father wishes to welcome and to share in the inheritance uh, at his own cost. So here, Abraham's comment about resurrection is not really about bringing Lazarus back from the dead, is it? No, it's about Jesus. 
that if the Pharisees have been blinded by their wealth and hypocrisy from understanding from Moses and the prophets that that's what they need to do, they're not going to believe Jesus has come back from the dead, and God's great act of liberation is going to be lost on them. And what's true about the Pharisees is also true to this day, although normally in different contexts. There are a lot of people who discount the faith, uh, who demand to see some sign or miracle. And there are a lot who wonder why God doesn't act in ways that clearly testify to his existence. If I could only see a sign, if God only did something we knew was God, I would believe. And we can maybe for a minute give that some countenance and think that might be reasonable. But Jesus' words here are appropriate and warn us against that. Because Moses and the prophets spoke from God. They provide the basis upon which to believe there is a creator God, that he had a covenant and a purpose for Israel, and that he would raise the dead. Because really, on its own, with no message before, what would a resurrected Jesus prove? And to explore that question, let's do a counterfactual for a second. Let's say that Abraham's like, all right, fine. And he brings Lazarus back from the dead, sends Lazarus to the five brothers. Would they listen? Well, they find some reason to discount the story. Well, maybe Lazarus never died. Who is this guy anyway? How do we know about him? Why would our brother send the beggar back to talk to us? Or any other number of things. There would be so many reasons that they would discount it that they would not heed the warning. When Jesus' followers proclaimed that Jesus was the risen Lord in Christ, King of Israel, did the most of the Pharisees say, Oh, well, that clearly what he said is correct. I'm going to change my ways and repent. No. They were hardened in their unbelief, and they persecuted the way. And so those who ask for a sign would try to find every reason to discount the sign that they would be given. Or they would try to explain it according to some other way. And if nothing else, they might just live in the disconnect. <laughs> that was weird. And then just move on with life. And why we can say this with confidence is because if they did truly have a heart to consider that God had done what he had said he had done in Christ, based on what is made known in Scripture, they would listen to what is said in Scripture and therefore be more open to see that God's abundantly working in Christ to this day in his creation. And that's why in Romans 10, 17, this the word of God proclaimed that generates faith. Because if you don't believe that God has operated in certain ways in the past, you're not going to see how he's working in certain ways in the present. If you're open to God and his work, then you'll be willing to accept the testimony of what God has done to and through his people in the past. And so that's the question that really comes to us. Are we going to be like the Pharisees, blinded in our pride and hypocrisy to the spiritual fate of torment that we're heading for in our greed and in our arrogance? Or are we going to open our hearts and minds to what God has made known in Jesus, that we can share an eternal life in him and with his people? And is our hope and prayer, of course, that you will choose the latter and not the former. We're again so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've benefited from this message. Uh, if you have, please share it on uh, social media, or you can also please subscribe to our podcast wherever you found us. If you have some questions or comments about the things that we've discussed, if you'd like to talk about anything further, uh, any way we can be of service, please reach out to us uh, on our website at VeneChurchOfChrist.org or on various forms of social media. Let us again go to the Lord in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful that you have given us the message of your word. Uh, we're thankful for the story uh, that Jesus has told us regarding the rich man and Lazarus. We pray, Father, that you would give us a heart and a mind to identify uh, with the people like Lazarus, to share uh, the material blessings you've given us with those who are less fortunate, that we can share in life with them, and to learn from them and benefit from them, uh, and jointly participate in life with them. 
Uh, we pray that we may not be hard-hearted like the, the rich man, that we may not uh, uh, grow cold towards you in our greed and covetousness, uh, but always seek to glorify and honor you and Jesus in all things. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And may the Lord bless you and keep you until we're able to meet again. Have a great day.